I love a good meal. Who loves a good meal? Who loves to eat, right? We love eating. Thanksgiving's coming up, and uh, at, during Thanksgiving at our home, we have uh, all of my family and all of uh, my wife's family, Sarah, we, they all come over typically to our house because we have kind of a bigger area at the, at the, on the, uh, in our living space. So we invite everyone over, and part of that's a little selfish, right? Like we don't have to go to two different Thanksgiving dinners now, right? One in the morning, one in the evening. No, everybody comes to our house, and we do it all during the day. And um, it's a great time for eating. It's a great time for celebration, relationship building, just connecting with family, resting with them, just hanging out. You know, you don't get a lot of that time, I think, um, a lot of us don't, and meals are just great. And I was, I was uh, preparing for this sermon, reading. I decided to look up meals that shaped history. It's very interesting if you look up, if you'll Google like meals that shaped history, you'll got, get a whole lot of different meals. And I came across this story of a man named James Gillespie Blaine. Anybody heard of James Gillespie Blaine? Probably not. In 1884, he was actually a Republican senator from Maine, and he was a presidential hopeful. And uh, he was running against Grover Cleveland. Heard of that guy before? Right? You've heard of Glover, Grover Cleveland before. So on o- October 29th, a week before Election Day in 1884, he was, he was actually predicted to beat the Democratic opponent, who was Glo- Grover Cleveland. And uh, the week before, he accepted an invitation to a dinner in his honor at the famous Delmonico's restaurant in New York. Okay, so this is where he goes to eat. And for years, this place, the wealthy and notable had eaten at this restaurant. Abraham Lincoln had eaten there. Napoleon had eaten there. Jenny Lind, Charles Dickens, all these kind of up and, you know, very, very uh, um, a, uh, famous people, wealthy people had eaten there. And, and the name Delmonico came to symbolize luxury and excess. Okay, and, and, and at the dinner, 200 guests were seated with him while a full orchestra played patriotic tunes while they ate, okay? So 200 guests, full orchestra playing, and um, Blaine, because of this meal, never makes it to the White House. It's very, very interesting because the day after the banquet, the AP printed, happened to find the menu and printed the elaborate menu of the nine-course meal along with the guest list who were people, who included people like Andrew Carnegie and Jay Gould and other millionaires and rich, rich people among that time. And whenever they printed the menu, they, on things, here's, here's just a few of the things that were on the list. Roast saddle of young venison surrounded by tartlets of sour apple marmalade covered in puff pastry. That was one dish. Chicken breast garnished with truffles was another dish. They had turtle stew. They had roast duck. They had all, it was a big nine-course meal, so this huge menu was printed. And news of this dinner starts to spread very quickly, this luxurious dinner. And a man named Joseph Pulitzer, you may have heard that name before, who was a Democrat, ran a front-page political cartoon in his newspaper titled The Royal Feast of Belshazzar Blaine and the Money Kings. It was on the front page of this political cartoon, and it depicted him and his friends dining on what he called lobby pudding and patronage cake while a working family was at the foot of the table waiting for scraps. And in the background of this cartoon was the biblical inscription that referred to the writing on the wall. That's what was on this cartoon. Grover Cleveland supporters plastered it all over the place. Like it was, it was new plastered all over the place, and Blaine lost New York by about 1,000 votes, and he failed to receive the electoral votes he needed 
to actually win the presidency. And that meal shaped his future. He would never, I think he was like a secretary of state at some point and all this, but he would never reach the point to where he was going to be a presidential hopeful again. Changed his history. It changed our history. You might know a President Blaine if it were not for that meal that he partook in. And today we're talking about another very famous meal, okay? Another meal that changed the shape of history. And on the night Before his crucifixion, Jesus gathered. He gathered with his closest friends, not millionaires, not billionaires, but some fishermen and some other Jewish guys, and they got together and they had a meal. But it wasn't just any meal. This was a Passover meal. And it was a remembrance. The Passover meal, it was this remembrance of the most defining moment in Israel's history. Their deliverance from Egypt and their deliverance from Pharaoh. See, the Passover meal has been a staple in the Jewish religion and culture for thousands of years. And even in Jesus' time, it had already been celebrated for like a thousand years plus. All right, so like you have, even when he was doing it, it had been celebrated for many, many years before that. And in the book of Exodus, you read about the institution of the Passover meal. And why they did it, why, why God told them to do it. And, and he told them about God's, God's instructions to the Hebrew people in the book of Exodus and how they needed to celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread, is what it was called. The Feast of Unleavened Bread, which the Passover meal was a part of that. And they would consecrate their firstborn from their flocks to their, uh, um, to their families. They would consecrate their firstborn to the Lord during those times. And this meal was a mark of their people. The Passover, this rescue, the story of the Exodus, the story of God rescuing his people was a mark for the Jewish people, a time that they could look back to. You remember the story. You've seen Prince of Egypt. You've probably, you know, heard this story before uh, about Moses and about the Exodus. But we're going to revisit it just a little bit so that we can get some context for what we're going to talk about today. All these plagues start happening, right? You have plagues where the Amazon gets filled. No, it's not the Amazon. It's the Nile. The Nile, you know, turns into blood. And, and, you know, there's gnats and flies and frogs and darkness and all this crazy stuff happening. And we get to the final plague, the final mighty act of God. It's the 10th plague, which would be the death of the firstborn sons, the death of the firstborn in a household. And God had been doing these things to show that, there, that he was the real God, right? He had been doing these things to show that to Pharaoh and the people of Egypt and the people of Israel. And it all culminates with this worst, the worst plague, the worst mighty act that was going to happen. And Moses was told to tell the Hebrew people what to do in order for the plague not to affect them. They actually had to act in accordance to this for the plague not to affect them. And you read about it in Exodus chapter 12. It's a great story if you want to go read it at some point. They were to take a spotless lamb, a male that was one year old, and they were going to keep it for two weeks. They would keep keep the lamb for two weeks. It becomes like a family pet, right? And then you go slaughter the pet, right? You go slaughter the lamb. They would all kill, all the families would do this, and then they would all kill the lambs at the same time. They would all do it at the same time, and they would take blood from the lamb, and what did they do? They placed it on their doorways. They placed it on their doorways, and then that night, when the angel of death, the Lord, came through to decimate, right, the whole area, God would pass over those households that had blood on it, and that's why they called it the Passover. It was was symbolic. It was was to be a sign that this household belongs to God. 
and that household would be passed over. Judgment would not come upon that household. They would be spared. And they would take the meat of the lamb, and they would eat it, and they'd eat it with unleavened bread. That's why it's called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the whole reason behind that was because they were supposed to do this fast. This was going to happen in one night. They needed to do all of these things in one night, and then the next day they were were going to be leaving. So they had to do this in haste, Exodus tells us, because they were going to leave quickly. And this would happen in one night. They would have to pack up their dough before it was leavened. All right? And there's a lot of other things that went into it. And God God told his people through Moses that even after they would be rescued, after this was going to happen, that they were to continue to keep this feast. They were, continue, they were to continue to keep this tradition, this meal, as a reminder that the Lord brought them out of Egypt, as a, as a reminder that God saved them. And from then on, the Hebrew people, they kept this memorial. They kept this feast, and they kept doing it every year as a reminder of their liberation, their freedom of when God rescued them from the hands of Pharaoh. So this, wasn't, this isn't just any meal. It was central to their culture. It was central to their religious upbringing. It was central to them as a people and their identity as God's people. So that's the backdrop of the message today, of our passage today. So when you read it, you have to remember that this was an, a very important event in the lives of Jesus and his disciples. It wasn't just, you know, some rote thing that they were doing. This was a big deal for them to do every single year. And we're going to be in Mark chapter 14. We're continuing that. We're going to jump in into this story and see how Jesus will take this huge event, this meal, this celebration, and he's actually going to go against the grain a little bit on defining this and redefining what this meal means. So let's do it. Mark chapter 14, starting in verse 12, should be up on the screen as well. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, the disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city. A man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, Say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is, my, where is my guest room and where I may where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. And the disciples set out and they went to the city and they found it just as he had told them and they prepared the Passover. So if you're following the story, if you've been doing the readings, Jesus is a marked man at this point. All right, he's marked. He's doing this. Un- he's starting to do some things under the radar in Jerusalem. So they're asking him, where are we going to celebrate the Passover? We can't just do it like out in the open. We have to do it kind of in secret and hiding a little bit. And Jesus gives them instructions. He says, you're going to go into the city and you're going to meet this guy and he's going to be carrying a jar of water. And he's going to tell you where you need to set up the Passover meal for us. And they, so, and they do this. And, you know, commentators would say, we don't know if this was a miracle or, or if Jesus had just prepared this before and like he had kind of prepped this with somebody but either way they know who they're looking for they go they find them and they prepare for the meal and let's keep reading what happens in verse 17 when it was evening he came with the 12 and as they were reclining at table and eating jesus said truly i say to you one of you will betray me one who is eating with me they began to be sorrowful and and they, they, and, and to say to him, one another, one after another, is it I? 
And he said to them, it is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. The story continues. Jesus, he's with his disciples. They're, they're eating and they had done every year of their lives with their families. They had done this, this same tradition every single year. And Jesus breaks, like drops a bomb, right? Like one of you is going to betray me. We heard about that last week, right? Judas was already planning. He knew. Jesus knew that this was happening. And we get to this huge implication here. I want to touch on this before we get to the rest because it's something very easy to look over. In verse 21, he says, For the Son of Man goes, what? As it is written of him. But woe to the man who will betray him. Woe, right? It's not like, whoa. Okay, woe is like a biblical, it's like a, it's like a, a term of um, lament. It's a term of judgment. It carries this weight of doom or condemnation. Woe to this person. Judas is about to betray him. And Jesus tells us that this has been written of him. This was planned. But despite the fact that the scriptures have already predicted this, that this has been planned, that Jesus would die, Judas is still responsible for his actions. I think that's a really important thing that we can miss here. There could be a whole other sermon about just these types of verses here. But to think about the implications of that. This has been planned, like God planned this out, but Judas is still responsible for his actions. This has been written of him, but woe to that man who decides to betray me, right? Like this is a very important implication on how things work like in this world. You know, is God in control and who's responsible for their actions? You see here it's both. The scripture is telling us that this has been written, and Judas is responsible, both of these. So, so when, we, when we get to this highlight, this next part, Jesus institutes this new meal. He institutes something new here, and he's going he's gonna to change, kind of redefine what the Passover means, and he's going to use it to teach his disciples and to teach us, and we're going to see what that means for us. Let's read in verse 22. This is really where I want to stay for today. And as they're eating... As they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it, and he gave it to them, and he said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And just like that, Jesus institutes this new tradition, this new meal. He completely redefines the Passover and he institutes a new meal for his followers. And we're going to participate in this meal later today, a little bit later at the end of the service. And I want to look at three ways I want to give you three ways that Jesus redefines the Passover and what that means for our belief and our faith here. It's such a rich and glorious thing that Jesus does here and what God has allowed to be in his scriptures. And if you'll examine it, if you'll ponder it, it's, I think it'll make this act of the Lord's Supper of communion very, very special and meaningful. Maybe more meaningful than it has been in a long time. And the first thing that Jesus proclaims is that he is the true Passover lamb. 
when they were all eating together, he took the bread and he said, and he broke it. And he said, this is my body. In the other gospels, the same account, he says, it would be broken for them. And he takes the cup and he tells them that his blood would be poured out for many. You see, that, that image of blood, that's on their minds. Why is that on their minds tonight? The Passover, right? They're eating. That was a huge part of their story. The blood that covered them, the blood that rescued them, the blood that signified we're part of a different household. God will not bring judgment on me. God will not bring judgment upon us because the blood that covers us. Sound familiar? God will not bring judgment upon us because of the blood that signifies who we belong to. The blood of a spotless lamb would signify to God that he would pass over their households and they wouldn't receive judgment. And I look at this and I say, how can you not see Jesus in this? How can you not see the story of the gospel, that he is our true Passover lamb? Like the lamb, Jesus' blood, it covers us. It's his blood, not our actions, are what keep us from God's judgment. And from now on, from this moment on, Jesus' blood, not the blood of a sacrifice, not the blood of a lamb that they would have to do every year, all these different things, that's what would protect people from judgment. That's what continues to protect people like us from judgment for those who take refuge in Christ. His once and for all sacrifice would be enough. There would be no more need for additional sacrifices. There would be no more need for atonement through animals or through other blood. His would be enough. His sacrifice would be the one to end all sacrifices. So Jesus is our true Passover lamb. The second thing I want to talk about is that Jesus also instills this new covenant with his people through this act. When the Jewish people would celebrate Passover, they didn't just look back towards redemption. They didn't just look back to when God rescued them and liberated them. But they also looked forward to God's ultimate liberation for his people. So as they're celebrating, they would, they would look backwards, but they would also wait for a true liberation, an ultimate liberation that they would experience. In Exodus 12, 42, Moses tells us about this. When he's talking about it, he says in verse 42 that it was a night of watching by the Lord, this, this Passover night, to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. They kept watch then, and they're continuing to keep watch. They would continue to keep watch of an ultimate liberation. And nothing describes this new covenant like the prophet Jeremiah in the Old Testament. Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. I want to read this together because it's so, so good when you think about the Passover and you think about Jesus coming and how this was all planned out. Jeremiah says this. He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. This is the Old Testament, right? Years and years and years before Jesus. When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers when? On the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. This is not like this old covenant. The covenant when I brought them out of Egypt. The Passover, right? My covenant that they broke. Though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make 
with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. This new covenant would provide a fresh start for the people of God, for the Jewish people. Rather than writing the law on a tablet, he doesn't write it on a tablet this time to give to Moses, to give to the people. He writes it on their hearts. This was a true liberation that the people needed. They didn't need need to be just rescued physically. They didn't need to be rescued from their exile and from all these oppressors. They needed to be rescued from their sin, from their rebellion against God. And isn't that the same for us? We need to be rescued from our sin. We need to be rescued from our rebellion. From the beginning, God has been working out this this whole story to culminate in the apex of history. When Jesus, the Son of God, would go to the cross, when he would die so that we could live. So our iniquities, so our sins would be forgiven, so he could be our God, and so that we could be his people. This Passover meal was a, was, was a looking back, but it was also a looking forward to when they wouldn't need to do this stuff anymore. There, God would rescue them ultimately. And Jesus is saying, now is that time. Here's the blood of what? The new covenant. When he said those words, I imagine the disciples are thinking, is he talking about the new covenant that Jeremiah talked about? Is that, is that what's happening here? Jesus would do this. this. Jesus is saying, it's time, it's time. I'm here to bring the new covenant now in effect for you. This long-standing problem of you continuing to rebel, of you continuing to turn away from me, of you continuing to, to go against what I say, to disobey, and I have to rescue you, and you disobey again, and I rescue you, and you disobey again, and I rescue you. I'm taking care of it once and for all. Because I'm not going to give you the law on a tablet anymore. I'm actually going to write it on your hearts. Many of them didn't actually know the Lord, even though they were God's people. Ethnically, they were Jewish, but many of them did not even know the Lord. They and we needed God to remedy the root of the problem, to take care of the real, real problem. In a sense, this was the last Passover, really, that was needed in a centuries-long celebration of looking forward to the Messiah, to their Savior. They had seen a fruition of all of these promises that he would give them, that God had given them over the years. True liberation from their real oppressor. Not a people, but their real oppressor, oppressor sin. Their sin. Finally, Jesus also prophesies of the day of a final feast. A final meal. At the end of these verses, Jesus tells his disciples, that he won't drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when he drinks it anew in the kingdom of God. And this is referring to this future event that's going to happen, a future banquet. 
at the end of time, after Jesus returns and redeems us, this new heaven, this new earth, the book of Revelation actually speaks of this, and we can read it in there. It's going to be up on the screen in Revelation. It says, and the angel said to me, this is John in Revelation, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. The marriage supper of the Lamb. In his vision, John, the writer of Revelation, saw this marriage feast, this marriage supper. And throughout the New Testament, the church is is referred to as the bride of Christ, right? We are the bride of Christ. He is our bridegroom. Jesus is our groom. We are his bride. Wedding customs in Jesus' day would include a lot of different things, but the final thing would be a feast to celebrate the marriage. And this is what's happening in John chapter 2 at this wedding at Cana. They're having this marriage feast for this couple, and there's this big party happening. All right, and sometimes these feasts would go on for days. They would go on, continue to celebrate. It's like a, a wedding reception that keeps going on, right, for like many, many, many days. This is kind of that idea that he's giving here. This is the wedding feast of Jesus, the groom, and his bride, the church, when they're finally brought together for good. And John says, blessed are those who are invited to this wedding feast, to this wedding supper, this marriage supper. It's like VIP, right? It's like a VIP meal. And each one of us who have trusted Christ for salvation, who've believed in the gospel, who've repented of our sin, and who follow him will be in attendance for the marriage supper. If you have done that, if you've said, yes, I've, I've, I've chosen to follow Christ, I've trusted him, I've trusted him for salvation, I follow him now, you are on the VIP list. You're on the invite list. You don't even got to RSVP, all right? It's already, your name's on the list. All right, when you get there, look through, yeah, your name's on the list. Come on in, right? Jesus initiates this new meal with his disciples that night. Not that it's bad to celebrate the Passover, you know. In fact, many Christians still do, Jewish Christians especially do. And in fact, it was actually celebrated, if you look through church history, it was celebrated for many, like hundreds of years after Jesus until really about the time of Constantine, which you could get into why that kind of stopped happening when you read about Constantine. But Jesus now calls us to celebrate this feast. He says, this is one. What does he say? Do this in remembrance of me right? The Lord's Supper. We also call it communion. Why do we call it communion? Have you ever thought about that? It's like, you know, I grew up calling it communion because I grew up in in the Catholic Church, and that's what we called it. And then when we started going to the Baptist Church, they called it the Lord's Supper. And I was like, okay, I guess this is kind of the same thing, I I guess. Um, And and, and people have called it communion. People have called it the Lord's Supper. They've called it the Eucharist. That's another thing uh, that comes from just the Greek term for being thankful, right, For for Thanksgiving. That's Eucharisto. That's kind of where that comes from. But in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul teaches about the Lord's Supper and how the church continues to celebrate it. And he says this in verse 16. He says, the cup of blessing that we bless, he's talking about the Lord's Supper, is not a participation, I'm sorry, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? Literally, that word is communion. Some of your translations may say, is this not a communion in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation or communion in the body of Christ? 
we use that term many times, communion, because of the communion that we have with Christ and with each other during this ordinance. It's an important part of this meal, being together. It's an important part. We're having communion with Christ. It's where we get the, you know, the same word is where we get our word community from. Gatherings, things like that. This meal, like that Passover meal, isn't to be partaken alone. It's to be celebrated community with other people, with other Christians, with other members of your church, with other people that are a part of your church. That's how they did it in the New Testament. When you read about it, they were gathering together and then they'd have a feast and then they would celebrate communion. They would celebrate the Lord's Supper. And when we partake of it together, Paul tells us that we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. That's what we do. Every time we do this, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes back, until he returns, until he drinks of the cup new in the kingdom. We keep doing this in remembrance, just like they celebrated the Passover. Going back to their key moment in their history, we celebrate this looking back to our key moment, the key moment in history, in all of history, not just our history, in history of the world. The death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul would continue in verse 17. Because there is one bread, we who are many, we are one body. For we all partake of the one bread. There was one Jesus who sacrificed himself. One body. We're many here, but we're actually one. We're actually one. So as we prepare to celebrate communion, the Lord's Supper. Although we are many, we are one body. For we all partake of one bread, the one sacrifice of Jesus. So I want you to dwell. As we take today, I want to give you a little bit of direction here. I want you to dwell on those three things I've shared today. Maybe just pick one to dwell on as you partake today. Maybe you want to dwell on the fact that Jesus is our true Passover lamb the once and for all sacrifice that, God, that allows God to pass over us. We don't receive judgment because we are covered by the blood of Jesus. Maybe you want to think about the new covenant that Jesus brought in, that the law is not written on your heart. The Holy Spirit lives in and through you. Your sins are forgiven. You are now part of the covenant. Maybe you want to dwell on that future feast the wedding supper of the Lamb, when Jesus will finally return to gather his bride, the church, and we will feast and we will celebrate with him forever and ever and ever. Whatever you choose to dwell on, Jesus asks you to do this in remembrance of him. Do this in remembrance of him. Think about his sacrifice. Paul continues in his letter, For I received from the Lord but I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup. And after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as long as you eat this bread, as long as you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death 
until he comes. Church family, let's proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This is a time of serious, this is a time of reflection. And before we partake, we should examine ourselves. We should examine our relationships and where we need to be in order to partake worthily. Prayerfully ask God where you need to repent and walk in obedience to him. Everyone who is a follower of Jesus is invited to participate. We celebrate open communion here, meaning anyone who calls you, if you're a Christian, if you follow Jesus, you are invited to participate with us. And here we use a process called intinction. It's a fancy word for dipping. Okay, that's what we do. You will tear part of the bread. It may already be torn. You'll dip it in the juice, and then you will partake. So you'll just come to the sides and do that here in a moment. I invite those of you who are followers of Jesus to participate, to reflect, to examine yourselves before God through prayer and through worship as Lance comes up. To think, and to think about those things, those elements of the Passover that we've talked about. As the music plays, you're free to go get your kids if you want to, per, to participate as a family. And we're going to stand and we're going to participate now in communion. So stand with me. Let's pray before we begin. God, you are so good to us. And as we get ready to proclaim your death through this act, through this meal, God, we thank you that you provided a once and for all sacrifice, that you've written your law in our hearts, and that we can look forward to one day where you will perfect us, we will be glorified with you. And we will feast with you forever. But until that day comes, we do this as a church body. We are one body. There is one bread and we are one body as we participate. So be with us now in a very special way as we proclaim your death through the act of the Lord's Supper and through communion, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You're free to participate at your leisure.